0: I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Anyone who has spent any time outside in tick country knows about the dangers of Lyme disease. Caused by a bacteria transmitted through tick bites, Lyme disease can have severe lasting consequences in some people. Luckily for our pets, there are vaccines to guard against Lyme, but only for animals. Here to talk about why that is, and how scientists are addressing this imbalance, is Dr. Richard Marconi, Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center. Part of Dr. Marconi's research involves developing potential human Lyme vaccines. Welcome, Rich. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and research experience?
1: Sure. Well, thank you first for having me, Mary. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming.
1: My pleasure. I earned my bachelor's degree in biology at William Patterson College in New Jersey. And after graduating from uh, William Patterson, I went to the University of Montana, where I studied microbiology and biophysical chemistry. Uh, After graduating with my PhD, I did my 1st postdoctoral training stint at the Roche Institute for Molecular Biology, which brought me back to the East Coast, back to New Jersey. And there I studied bacterial metabolism. And that was in the uh, late 1980s. And at that time, Lyme disease was really becoming quite a hot topic. Mm -hmm. I very vividly remember seeing the cover page of Newsweek magazine, which highlighted that there was this new and mysterious disease that was creeping across the country. I became very interested in that. So I decided at that point that I wanted to get involved in Lyme disease research and do a second postdoctoral training stint. So I accepted an intramural research training award at the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in beautiful Hamilton, Montana.
0: My folks are actually from Montana. So yeah, it's just gorgeous out there. They lived in Missoula. So
1: yeah, Yes. So, uh, in fact, Rocky Mountain Laboratories is about 50 or 60 miles south of Missoula. Yep. But, you know, it was wonderful to work there because uh, Rocky Mountain Laboratories is part of the National Institutes of Health. So it's a really well-funded, well-developed research facility. Mm-hmm. And it's become known as one of the you know, leading centers in the world for studying tick-borne diseases. When I was there, I also had the pleasure of working with a gentleman named Willie Bergdorfer. Uh, And as some folks may know, the causative agent of Lyme disease is, in fact, called uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. So it was named after Dr. Willie (laughs) Burgdorfer.
0: Wow. I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I had a great opportunity when I was there to study with people who were really right there at the very beginning of Lyme disease. And it was a wonderful training experience. And then after leaving Rocky Mountain Laboratories, I accepted an assistant professor position at Virginia Commonwealth University, and that was in 1994, uh, and I've worked my way through the ranks there, and now I'm a full professor of medicine, and I've basically been studying tick-borne diseases with an emphasis on Lyme disease for 30-plus years at this point.
0: Wow. Well, you're definitely the guy to talk to about this topic then. So can you tell me about Lyme disease and, and other tick-borne diseases that are of note?
1: Sure. Well, you know, in in the United States, or I should say North America, we have a couple of very significant tick borne diseases that we need to think about and be concerned about. But certainly at the top of the list is Lyme disease. And the reason I say that is because it is the most common tick borne disease in the Northern Hemisphere. So it is clearly the most important of the tick borne diseases in terms of its numbers. But others that we need to be concerned about include diseases called ehrlichiosis, anaplasmosis, and of course, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you tell me about how Lyme disease circulates in nature?
1: One of the key things to know about Lyme disease is that a tick, when an adult female exodes tick lays the eggs in order to renew the cycle, Mm -hmm. what emerges from the eggs is a stage of the tick called the larvae. And the larvae are infection free. They are not carrying Lyme disease. And the reason for that is that Lyme disease cannot be transmitted from the adult female tick through the egg uh, to the larvae. So there's no what we call transovarial transmission. Oh. So what that means is that the only way that a tick can become infected is if it feeds on an infected animal. Now there's also another very important point to note is that there is no Animal to animal transmission of Lyme disease. So I can't get it from you, you can't get it from your dog, your dog can't pass it on to another mammal, etc. So for Lyme disease to propagate in nature, what has to occur, and again, I'd sort of put this in the context of this is like what came first, the chicken or the egg, (laughs) but you have an uninfected larval stage tick which will seek out a blood meal. Now, larval stage ticks. Because of their biological properties, they tend to be uh, ground dwelling ticks and they tend to feed on ground dwelling mammals. Things like moles, voles, shrews, mice, things in that category. If they happen to feed on an infected animal, Mm -hmm. then those larval stage ticks will acquire the infection. Now, the larval stage ticks feed only once. So, if they fed on an infected animal, they become infected. And they carry that infection with them throughout the rest of their developmental cycle. And What happens after a larval stage tick feeds Mm -hmm. is that it undergoes a molting process or the process of molting. And after molting, the larval stage tick will develop into what's called the nymphal stage tick. Now, this is then the first stage of the tick that has the potential to now transmit the Lyme spirochetes onto another animal. And of course, if the nymphal stage tick is not already infected prior to it taking a blood meal, when it feeds, it now has the potential to a second chance of acquiring that infection. The nymphal stage ticks, in contrast to the larval stage ticks, are anatomically different. And it's a very important difference because larval stage ticks only have six legs. And that's why they tend to stay on the ground. They're not particularly good climbers. But the nymphal stage ticks will have eight legs, and that allows them to get higher up into the vegetation and to seek access to larger mammals.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so that's really important in the process. If the a nymphal stage ticks in the process of transitioning from the larvae to the nymph, if they did not develop that extra set of hind limbs, they probably would not be able to get access to us and cause Lyme disease in us or in our dogs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's an important transition. Now the nymphal stage tick also just takes one blood meal. Mm. And it's really remarkable when ticks feed because they can increase their body mass by as much as 500-fold. So that's a that's a pretty good meal.
0: Yeah, I've I've seen that actually. I found one on my carpet. I don't know if it came from me or my dog many years ago and it was about the size of a peanut M&M.
1: Yeah, that that's quite interesting. I've actually had the same experience.
0: So it might be important to note now, maybe just for my own peace of mind, because I hate ticks so much, do they serve an important ecological purpose? Do they, for example, provide food for a cuter animal?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. And it's certainly not the first time I've been asked that. (laughs) And and I've pondered that uh, for quite some time and actually tried to find an answer to that question. (laughs) And we don't know. What the, oh, wow. okay. what the role of ticks is in the larger scheme of things. But what we do know is that they're ancient creatures and they have been around for a long time. Uh, they're, they're hardy, they're durable, and all indications are that they will be around for quite a bit longer and pot- potentially even outlast us.
0: At this rate, yeah, probably. Yeah. Speaking of going back to humans, what are some of the long-term effects of Lyme disease for people that get it?
1: Sure. Well, Lyme disease can be a very serious and debilitating infection. But first, I'll start by saying that the good news is that when Lyme disease is diagnosed early, it's readily treatable. Uh, You know, there is some controversy in the area of diagnostics and other issues, such as a condition called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. But overall, for those people who are diagnosed early, a three-week to four-week course of doxycycline usually proves to be quite effective in eliminating the illness. Now, having said that, the initial symptoms of Lyme disease are somewhat difficult to identify as a Lyme disease infection. So w- whether it's ourself or in our companion animals and our dogs, the initial symptoms are malaise, just not really feeling so well, potentially a very low-grade fever, achiness, etc. It may sound funny to say this, but In about 60 to 70% of human patients, an erythema migrans lesion or a bullseye rash will develop at the site of the tick bite. And frankly, if that rash develops, you're kind of one of the lucky individuals because it's a very characteristic early clinical manifestation of Lyme disease. And most clinicians are well versed and can easily identify that bullseye rash as a symptom of Lyme, and therefore, initiate treatment very early. But if Lyme is not caught early, then as I said a few minutes ago, some very significant long-term clinical manifestations can develop. And to understand what those symptoms are and and why they occur, it's important to know that an infection with the Lyme disease, spirochetes, is in fact a true chronic infection. So I wanna be clear on what I mean by that. When a mammal gets infected by the Lyme disease spirochetes, the infection will essentially persist indefinitely. Lyme is a multi-systemic infection that can affect the cardiovascular system, a musculoskeletal system, the nervous system, etc. cetera. So some of these specific types of clinical things that may develop in a long-term Lyme disease patient include neurological deficits, carditis or inflammation of the heart, prolonged periods of arthritis, which interestingly enough typically develop in one or more of the large joints, mm. and other serious skin manifestations. Something called acrodermatitis hands is common in Europe, less common in North America, but it's a very significant condition of the skin that leads to necrosis and tissue destruction and can be quite Potentially disfiguring. Mm-hmm. So again, the the key for Lyme disease is to prevent and treat early.
0: Yeah, my my husband actually got Lyme disease recently. Luckily, he had very obvious rash, um, the bullseye rash, and his doctor was able to diagnose it o- over a webcam. <laughs> so he just went and picked up his prescription and took care of it. So he got off easy comparatively. Is there any effect of Lyme disease on the tick, or are they just carriers?
1: They are just carriers. Uh, yeah. We know of no impact that the spirochetes have on the tick itself.
0: Yeah. Well, we, we pretty much covered treatment options. So I understand there was a human Lyme vaccine at one time. Can you share that story?
1: Sure. So in the early days of seeking to develop vaccines for Lyme disease, one of the most obvious targets that was identified to utilize as a vaccine antigen was a protein called outer surface protein a or osp a so that was the first protein that was pursued in the development of a lyme disease vaccine and it was successfully developed and in 1998 a vaccine entered the market which was called limericks and limericks con- consisted solely of this purified form of outer surface protein A. And studies had shown that was pretty was pretty effective, but it required multiple doses in order to achieve uh, a high level of protective immunity. So it required three doses to achieve a protective efficacy of about 72%. Now, really when that vaccine came onto the market, we really thought that was gonna be the answer to the Lyme disease problem but not long after it entered the market, concerns began to be raised about adverse events that could be attributable to, or associated with delivery of the vaccine to humans. Most specifically, people were concerned about the possibility of arthritic events and other autoimmune type of responses. So at the time that these concerns became known to the public, they really got amplified by the media, social media, and by patient advocacy groups as well. And the consequence of that was that the demand for the vaccine dropped rather dramatically uh, out of fear of adverse events. The FDA, the CDC, and all of the other relevant agencies looked very, very carefully at the data to determine if it was in fact possible that the lyme vaccine was inducing adverse events. And the strong conclusion was that this, the vaccine was quite safe and that there were no issues that warranted its removal from the market. And, and the review was really rather exhaustive. So I'm very much in the, in the camp where I believe that there truly were no significant adverse events associated with the vaccine. Nonetheless, you know, at the time when this was going on, as I mentioned, it really destroyed the market. For the vaccine. So the vaccine was actually voluntarily pulled by the manufacturer in 2001, uh, and they cited largely market concerns that uh, it wasn't getting sufficient uptake in the market. Having said that, while the vaccine I think was truly safe, there were in fact some problems with it that made it less attractive to the public. One of those was the fact that it required multiple booster vaccinations in order to achieve a reasonable efficacy.
0: I understand that vaccination for Lyme is relatively routine in veterinary medicine. I mean, I understand that because I have owned dogs and cats my whole life, particularly for dogs. What types of vaccines are currently available for dogs and can they be adapted for human use?
1: Well, I'll start by talking about the primary difference between the two categories or two major types of vaccines that are now being used in dogs. Basically, there are two major types. One type of Lyme disease vaccine is generically referred to as a Bacterin vaccine. Mm -hmm. the Second type is a vaccine that's referred to as a subunit vaccine. So the difference between the two is that Bacterins are fairly simple types of vaccines to produce. So for example, if we wanted to make a Bacterin vaccine for Lyme disease, What we would do is we would grow up a rather large batch of the Lyme disease spirochetes. You can do this in a laboratory. You grow them up in a liquid media. Mm -hmm. And after they have grown up and you've achieved a sufficiently dense, what we call culture of the bacteria, you recover those bacteria, you inactivate them or kill them, because of course you don't want your vaccine to cause an infection. Right. So the bacteria are killed. Then they're emulsified and homogenized and filtered. Uh, to remove, obviously, things like clumps in a vaccine. We don't want clumps in a vaccine. So they're filtered, and then that becomes the actual vaccine preparation. So a bacterin actually consists of everything that the Lyme disease spirochetes grow when we grow them in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. And we we know very well, uh, with a lot of detail, what is produced by these bacteria in the laboratory while they're growing in culture. And they make about fifteen hundred different proteins. So a bacterin vaccine contains that whole complete mix of all of those proteins. And that's you know those have been moderately effective vaccines and, and very useful in veterinary medicine for some time. But what we're trying to do in the world of vaccinology as a whole is move to cleaner vaccines, ones that are more defined in their composition. And that's where the subunit vaccines come into the picture in terms of lyme disease lymerix the vaccine that i mentioned earlier is in fact a subunit vaccine it consists of a single protein and we refer to that protein as recombinant protein which simply means that it was produced in the laboratory and then carefully purified under very controlled circumstances so with lymerix when that vaccine was delivered instead of 1500 proteins you're getting one single protein. And that's that's a positive step forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a second vaccine available, um, which is a vaccine that we developed called Vanguard cr Line, which consists of two proteins. It contains OSP-A and a very unique version, modified version of a second protein called OSP-C. So to summarize that, two types of vaccines, Bacterins and subunits, Bactrins are basically a, what we call a whole cell lysate, and the subunit vaccines are purified recombinant proteins. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the other difficulties associated with the development of a human Lyme vaccine? So, like, what are some of the hurdles that need to be overcome?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest hurdles that those of us who have worked on vaccines for Lyme disease have encountered is that the bacteria that cause Lyme disease are remarkably variable. Mm. So there's a lot of diversity in these bacteria. And when you're making a vaccine, you, you of course want to make a vaccine that can protect against all of the different variants. Mm-hmm. And the word variant has become a common term these days <laughs> as we hear what's going on with COVID. But the level of diversity and variation in the Lyme spirochetes, meaning if you compare one Lyme disease strain with another is really pretty remarkable. So that posed a real significant challenge. How can you make a vaccine that will protect against all those different strains? And, you know, we were able to find an answer to that, which is, I think, really exciting and has a lot of potential for other vaccines down the road. And I'll just be very brief in describing this, but I mentioned that the vaccine that we developed contains a protein called OsPc. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't actually contain OSC. It contains a modified form of OSC that we created in the laboratory. And in brief, as we were pondering in the early days, how could we make an OSPC protein that could protect against all of the different variants of that protein and exi- that exist in nature, we came to the conclusion that we could not allow nature or that nature would not never provide us with the answer to it. <laughs>
0: so
1: we had to create our own answer. So, what we did is we found the immunologically important parts of OSPC, and we took those from many different variants of the OSPC protein, and we assembled those pieces together. Basically, we created a new gene, and then from that, created an, a new protein that had OSPC pieces from many different Lyme spirochete strains joined together. And we call that chimeritope technology. So, that was exciting to be able to figure out how to make a broadly protective vaccine. And that's the, one of the challenges that we have to encounter in in moving the vaccine into humans. We have to make sure that the vaccine is tailored to address the diversity of strains that can infect humans. But scientifically, you know, I think we're we're kind of getting there for a human vaccine. There there is another human vaccine that is in clinical trials. It is an OSP-A based vaccine. So, there's going there hopefully there will be a couple of different options. But there's one other challenge that arises in developing a human vaccine. And that is that with the failure of Limrix or the demise of Limrix, you know, back in 2002, it really dampened in, uh, interest by the pharmaceutical companies and the vaccine manufacturers to pursue another human vaccine. So Lyme disease vaccine r- research sat idle for quite some time. And you know, it's you can create a vaccine, but then you have to get people to use it. Uh, you have to get them to, to accept it. So what we need to do, what we all need to do, those of us working in this area, is we need to develop a vaccine that requires minimal number of boosters, and of course that has uh, no, no adverse events associated with it, which of course is obvious. But the key thing is we want to have a vaccine that doesn't require three doses a year, et cetera, because that right. just generally doesn't work uh, with the human population.
0: Can you think of anything else that researchers or drug developers would need to bring a human vaccine to market?
1: Well, I think the great, you know, most of the vaccine efforts that are ongoing now, except for one, which is actually in the hands of large pharma who's working on clinical trials. Mm-hmm. What's what's really needed is we need to increase public awareness about Lyme disease. Lyme disease, it's interesting because most everybody knows about Lyme disease, um, mm-hmm. and it's sort of an interesting disease to people because they're fascinated by the fact that it's transmitted by a tick. So. And everybody knows somebody who's had Lyme disease or they've had a dog that has had Lyme disease. So we need to you know, further increase the awareness of the fact that this is an infection that can in fact be prevented. And it can be prevented with very safe and very clean vaccines. Uh, the second thing that we need is we need you know, the public to express their interest in such a vaccine because that will motivate and drive pharma horse investors and mid-sized mid biotech companies to pick up the effort to advance a vaccine. So it's both an awareness uh, issue that we need to address, as well as, for lack of a better term, a business issue to advance a Lyme vaccine.
0: That makes sense. Um, maybe you could get a celebrity spokesperson. I understand one of the real housewives of one of the cities has Lyme disease and has spoken about it a lot. So... Celebrity endorsements never hurt.
1: (laughs) They never hurt. And, you know, Lyme uh, doesn't pick. Lyme has no boundaries on who it will infect.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So
1: it's a disease, interestingly, that's associated with healthy activities. So we tend to think of disease as something that might often be associated with, you know, bad practices or... Right. Hiking,
0: camping, mountain climbing, (laughs) things like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so anybody can get it, and it doesn't matter if you're a celebrity or not. uh, You're you're on the table. Yep, as a candidate.
0: And you know, speaking of which, is global warming or climate change influencing the spread of Lyme disease, and therefore the need for a human Lyme vaccine? I think the answer to this is yes. But (laughs) go ahead. Yeah,
1: well, I I would certainly answer yes as well, but I would just qualify it by saying that uh, environmental science is not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So I would simply relay to you what I'm learning from the entomologists and others who are studying the impacts of uh, environmental change and global warming on what's most relevant to what we're talking about, and that's the tick population.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the tick population is expanding dramatically. It's, it's, it's a great time to be a tick frankly. Um, And if you look at how the tick population, and I'm very specifically talking about the ticks that cause Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. If you look at how the population of those ticks have spread and increased over the past several decades, it's truly remarkable. Back in 1996, the ticks that transmitted Lyme disease were largely found in fairly tight geographic regions in the Northeast, the upper Midwest, and even a little bit in the South. But studies by the CDC have shown that when they compared the tick distribution from 1996 with a study that was done in 2015, we now see that the entire Northeast, well down into the mid-Atlantic states, is essentially a high-density tick zone. The same sort of spread has occurred in the upper Midwest, and there's an increase in the tick population on the West Coast as well. Mm-hmm. And real importantly, we're seeing this spread go northward as well. So Lyme is quite a significant problem in, in Canada as well, yeah. particularly on both the east and west coasts of Canada.
0: I understand that it's not necessarily just Lyme that is creating a problem for other species with the tick population explosion. Most, for example, I understand, are at very high risk of anemia because they're so covered in ticks that they don't have enough blood left for themselves.
1: Yeah, that's very true, and you know that has been a real concern, certainly in the upper Midwest, and even more in the very upper Northeast, in Maine, for example. Obviously, wildlife, you know, has no protection from ticks, and they are exposed to uh, tremendous, tremendous numbers of ticks. We have recently been studying the effects of these tick-borne diseases on wildlife, and it's been really quite fascinating. But the situation that you're referring to, utilizing Moose, as an example, that's not necessarily just the Lyme disease transmitting ticks that are a problem there. There are many different types of ticks, Mm -hmm. uh, and some of them can really consume rather large blood meals. And so when any animal gets infested with thousands of ticks, it's going, going to have a consequence because these ticks are very voracious feeders. And as I said, they'll increase their body mass over 500, 600 fold from just a single blood meal. So you're right, it is it is a real problem, and it's affecting certain species of wildlife in a very negative way.
0: Yeah. the That giant tick I was telling you about earlier, I when I picked it up off the floor, I thought it was like an ugly bead or something that had fallen off of an ugly necklace. <laughs> and then I saw its little tiny legs wriggling, and it was probably the most horrifying thing I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> See, and now I would at that <laughs> really differently, and I'd say, this, this is great that I found <laughs> a, a great tick specimen, but...
0: Yep. So, what is the likely future of a human Lyme disease vaccine? Do you think we'll have one in the next ten years?
1: I do. I'm optimistic. Good. (laughs) As I said, uh, there is currently one that is in clinical trials. Uh, I don't know whether that particular vaccine will be the end-all, be-all, or to, to deal with Lyme disease. And as with any type of disease, in which we're developing, in which vaccines are being developed you want to see multiple approaches being taken to the table to solve the problem. And that's what's going on. So I do think because of the increasing numbers of cases of Lyme disease, the spread of the tick population, the increasing awareness in the public, that we will in fact move towards a human vaccine. And I do think it will occur within that within the 10-year window.
0: Excellent. Well, that's good news. Yes, it is. Thank Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This has been a really fascinating conversation and a little gross, but that's okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's been my pleasure and thank you for, uh, (laughs) for your time.
0: Thank you.